Well, welcome to The Crossing. So good to see you today. Glad you made it out and are getting out of the hot and some free AC here. Well, would you do me a favor and help me welcome our Southeast campus, those who are watching online and our microsites. We're glad that you're a part of The Crossing family and joining us. Also joining us today is a great church from Milwaukee called the Ridge. Their pastor is Mark White, a friend of mine. He's a fantastic pastor in a fantastic church. And would you give them a huge welcome and welcome them here to Vegas with us. Glad that you're with us. Well, every year the National Spelling Bee is held in Washington, D.C. And this consists of kids who are obviously smarter than we are, who compete against each other until there's only one person left standing. Well, a few weeks ago, this girl, Ananya Vignier, beat out 291 other people in the spelling bee by spelling this word right here, Marocaine. Now, I know you don't know how to spell that word. You don't even know what that word is. So I'll help you out here that that is a dress fabric made out of silk. And in honor of this spelling bee, Google actually released the most misspelled words of every state. And I thought these were pretty interesting. Arkansas, the most misspelled word is Chihuahua. I'd have a hard time spelling Chihuahua myself, so that's kind of understandable. Missouri, it's maintenance. This is a word I have a hard time spelling. Anybody else have a hard time spelling maintenance? Okay, I'm the only one. Uh, Michigan. It is pneumonia because it's cold in Michigan, and they get pneumonia all the time in Michigan. New Hampshire, the word that they have a difficult time spelling, (laughs) it's difficult. You know, they can't quite get that. Here in Nevada, our word is available. Now, I know there's a joke behind that, and I'm just afraid to say it, and so, you know, I'm just going to leave that one out. Wisconsin, the word they have a hard time spelling. Is their own state, Wisconsin. They can't quite get that one right. Well, Connecticut, the word that they have a hard time spelling is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which causes me to ask a couple questions. Number one, why do you need to spell that word to begin with? And number two, you're just trying to show off. You're just trying to show how much smarter you are than the rest of us. Well, what's interesting to me is most of us have a dictionary literally at our fingertips. We have spell check on our computers and on our phones, but we misspell words all the time. Wouldn't it be great if you had Ananya who kind of was over your shoulder to make sure you didn't send out some embarrassing email or send out some text message that gets you into trouble? Well, that's the idea of this series, Running with the Giants. This idea of this series is there are these giants of the Bible who have gone before us and have learned some life lessons that they can now speak into our life and help us learn from the mistakes that they made. This series is based on a scripture out of Hebrews chapter 12 where it says this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, this is the heroes and the faith who are in the stands. They've gone before us, and just picture them cheering you on. They're telling you, don't quit. Don't give up. You can make it. You can do this. And these witnesses, says, since we're surrounded by these witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, that everybody here is running a race, and you have a unique race that God has for you. 
It is this unique race that God wants you to run. And what if one of these giants of the faith could step out of the stands and run a lap with you? What would they say to you to help you run the race that God has for you? What could they share with you to help you learn from their life? Well, today, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 32. Because today, Jacob is going to step out of the stands. And he's going to run a lap of the race with us. Now, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. He is the son of Isaac. And there is a lot that's written in the Bible about Jacob. He has an interesting life. And one of the things that we're going to learn from Jacob is how to respond when life isn't turning out the way that you hoped. When your life is not turning out the way that you hoped, because for a lot of us, that the race that you're on right now is not the race that you thought that you would be on. It is a much different kind of race. And what we try to do is we try to control our lives on our own terms. We try to direct our lives in the direction that we want them to go. And for Jacob, he tried to control the outcomes. He tried to manipulate the circumstances of his life and to manipulate anyone who got in the way. And it started out at his birth. Jacob was a twin. And when his mom, Rebecca, was pregnant, she could feel them wrestling inside the womb. And when he was being born, his brother Esau was born first. But the Bible says that when he was still in the womb, he reached out of the womb and he grabbed his brother's heel. He's like, come back in here. I want to be born first. And from day one, he was manipulating. And it's understandable why he wanted to be born first. Because the birthright was given to the oldest born son. And the birthright was valuable. It contained power and money and blessing. See, with the birthright, it had this money. You got a double portion of the inheritance from, than anybody else did. You got twice as much as inheritance as the rest of the brothers and sisters got. It came with power. That the oldest son was given authority over the rest of the family. And it was believed that God had a special blessing on the oldest born son. Well, fast forward several years and Esau is out hunting because Esau is the outdoor guy. Jacob is the indoor guy. And he comes back from hunting and he's famished. And he says to Jacob, he says, give me some stew or I will die. And Jacob says, well, let's negotiate this for just a minute. He says, I'll give you some stew if you sell me your birthright. Now, who would trade their future wealth and future power for a bowl of stew? The answer to that question is, is you and I would for the right bowl of stew. Because that's what appetites do to us. Well, Jacob manipulates his brother into giving him his birthright. And then several years later, he tricks his dad into giving him the, the blessing as the patriarch of the family. And he dresses up like his brother. He actually puts some goat's fur on his arms because his brother is hairy and he is not. His dad thinks that it's his brother and he gives him the blessing. And this is the second time that he's stolen something from Esau and Esau is ready to kill him. And so Jacob runs for his life. And his mom, Rebecca, says, why don't you go to my brother, your Uncle Laban, and stay with him? And so he goes and he lives with his Uncle Laban, and he falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. 
and he worked for her for him for seven years so that he could marry Rachel. And Laban is a little like Jacob, and he tricks Jacob into marrying his less attractive older daughter, Leah. And the Bible says that the next morning, when he wakes up after his wedding, this is actually what it says, you can read it, it says he wakes up and there was Leah. It's the wrong woman. It's like, what is she doing here? Well, he works another seven years to marry Rachel, ends up working for his uncle Laban for 20 years. But the master manipulator, he's at it again, and he decides he's tired of working for his uncle. And so he sneaks away without telling his uncle that he's leaving. He takes all the livestock and all the things that he believes that he's earned and he's deserved, and he takes off. Well, not long after that, word gets out to Esau that they've now located Jacob. And he's wanted to kill Jacob for 20 years. And so Esau gets 400 men together, and they go, and they're going to confront Jacob. And Jacob ends up in a crisis that redefines his life. And this is where Jacob can speak in to you and me. That when life is not turning out the way that you hoped, you trust God with the outcomes. That when your life is not going in the direction that you had hoped that it goes, that you trust God with the outcomes of your life. That here's what we're guilty of. We're guilty of the same thing that Jacob did, is we try to control the outcomes of our life. We try to direct our lives on our terms. We try to manipulate people and circumstances to get our way. We even try to, to manipulate God to giving us what we want. And this story, this crisis point of Jacob's life, he comes face to face with God. And we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 22, where it says, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and their eleven sons, and crossed the ford to the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions, so Jacob was left alone. Jacob actually, we find out earlier in the chapter, he split his family up into two different groups and he sent them in two different directions. Because his thought was that if Esau tries to kill the family, he'll only kill off half, half of the family and the other half will still survive. And so he sends them off into two different directions. And so Jacob is alone. And this is when God does his best work in us. See, this is when God does his best work, when all the distractions and all the busyness of life are eliminated, God begins to work in our life in a specific way. And God finally gets Jacob alone, and he's going to finally confront this deceiver, this heel grabber. And it says, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now this man right here, it's the way that they wrote it, it's kind of in poetic fashion, that this man right here, it's referring to God, or at least an angel, but it is very likely that this is Jesus. That oftentimes in the Old Testament, when they had an unnamed angel, that was oftentimes a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus himself. And it says that he wrestled with him until daybreak. That he wrestled with God. Jacob has spent his entire life wrestling with people. He wrestled with 
Esau, he wrestled with Isaac, he wrestled with Laban, he wrestled with his wives, and now he's wrestling with God. This is exactly where some of you are today. You have been wrestling with God. It goes on here in verse 25. It says, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. See, Jacob was this guy originally, remember, he stole the blessing from his dad. Now he's wrestling with God and he says, I want your blessing. I'm not going anywhere until you bless me. And this angel touches Jacob's hip and pops it out of socket. says, then the man said to him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. This word Jacob right here, the name actually means deceiver. It actually means trickster. That from the beginning, he was a deceiver. He was a heel grabber. He deceived people into getting what he wanted. And God says, your name is no longer Jacob, but it is now Israel. Israel means struggles with God, but it also means peace with God. He says, I'm going to give you a brand new name, that you are no longer going to be known as Jacob. You're going to be known as Israel. Then Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. And he would walk with a limp for the rest of his life. It would be this sign to everybody he came in contact with that he wrestled with God. It was this reminder because when you wrestle with God, it leaves a mark. And here's what Jacob wants to teach us. Is that you trust God with the outcomes. You trust God with the outcomes. See, a lot of people, they come to church and they call themselves Christians, but they don't really trust God. Yes, I want the Christianity thing, but I want to control my own outcomes. I want to control my own life. And here's what you'll find out, is that it will lead to a crisis in your life. And God may not cause the crisis, although I think sometimes God does cause the crisis. But God will allow the crisis because the crisis will get your attention. I told this story a few years ago. But when my youngest daughter, Taylor, was a senior in high school, she was a cheerleader for her school. And so she was cheering on the other side of town, and she drove her car to the other side of town to go cheer. And on the way home, she had some car trouble. She called us, and she said, Dad, I'm broken down on the 215. And her and her friend were standing outside on the highway because her car had filled up with smoke. It was about 30 degrees outside. They didn't have any coats. And so... I started heading that way. I called a tow truck on my way. And when we get there, we find out that she had actually blown the engine of her car. And I get there. I said, tell me what happened. She said, Dad, you know, we were driving along and we started to lose power. She said, but we were on the highway and we were scared. So we just kept going. She said, but finally the car filled full of smoke and we couldn't go any further. 
She says, Dad, before you say anything, there was no signs that this was going to happen. I'm like, come on, Taylor. I said, did the temperature gauge go to H? She said, yes, but I don't know what that means. Well, that means hot. That's what that means. I said, did the warning light not come on? She goes, oh, yeah, the warning light came on on the way to the game, but I had to get to the game, so I just figured I would check it when I got home. For a lot of us, the warning light has been on in your life, and you just ignore it, and you keep going. God has been trying to get your attention. There is this warning light that God is trying to get an attention in your life, and you just keep ignoring it. You keep trying to control the own, your own outcomes. You keep going in the direction that you want to go. And God just keeps saying, it's time. It's time to change. It's time for a change because God wants to get our attention. God wants to get our attention. He's saying, would you just trust me with the outcomes of your life? Would you trust me in this? Well, there's three huge life lessons from this story. Three things that, that Jacob can teach us. And here's number one, is that wrestling with God will wear you out. That wrestling with God will wear you out. Jacob wrestles with God all night long. And this is where a bunch of you are right now. You've been wrestling with God. This is what every Sunday feels like to you. And you are exhausted by the life that you're living. And God will allow a crisis or a pain to bring you back. See, if you're a parent, you understand that. If you're a parent, you know that there are times that you will let your kids go down a certain path that you know will bring them pain and will hurt them. But you allow them to go down that path because you know that they have to learn. They have to learn and, and that's the only way they're going to learn. This is why God will allow you to go through hardships in your life. It is not to pay you back. It is to bring you back. And when you are going against God, it will wear you out. And some of you came in church today exhausted from your own fights. Jesus speaks into us. And he says this. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Now, if you didn't know what came after this, you would think that Jesus would just say, now just lay down, take a nap, relax. But Jesus actually says the exact opposite. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, a yoke was used for work. A yoke is a piece of wood that had two holes in it, and they would put, put it over oxen so that they would plow together. So that they would plow together. And there's actually two words for yoke. There's one kind of yoke. It is the generic Walmart version of the yoke. It is the one-size-fits-all. And the problem with the one-size-fits-all is that every animal is different, and it would wear on your shoulders. And so at the end of the day, you would be bruised and bleeding because it did not fit correctly. That's not the word that Jesus uses here. The word Jesus uses here for yoke is the word of a custom fit yoke. That farmers who loved their animals, they would measure them and they would carve out a one that perfectly fit you. Some of you, you are living a life that does not perfectly fit you and it is leaving you bruised and bleeding and worn out. 
And Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. See, one of the signs of God's work in your life is rest. And rest is not inactivity. Rest is a condition of the soul. It's a condition of the soul where you don't get exhausted because you're fighting against God. Wrestling with God will wear you out. Here's the second life lesson for us is that you will get a new identity. That you will get a new identity. Jacob is wrestling with God, and the angel says, what is your name? Well, he knows what his name is already, but he wants Jacob to say it out loud. My name is Jacob. My name is Deceiver. My name is Heel Grabber. See, there's something about a name that conveys identity. My parents were movie buffs, and so my parents named me after the movie Come Home Shane. Has anybody seen that movie, Come Home Shane? Okay, one of you. Okay, so that's what I was named after. Apparently, my parents must have watched too much TV because I have a brother by the name of Sean. He was named after Sean Connery, the original James Bond. I have a brother named Steve. He was named after Steve McQueen. So apparently, my parents needed to do something else besides watch movies. But that's what I was named after because names, they convey identity. That some people really like their names, and some people, they want to change their names. So I've got a little quiz here of famous people who changed their names. So you can see if you can guess these. Lou Alcindor changed his name to what? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali. Karen Johnson. Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg. Um, Jennifer a- um, Anastensinoticus. Jennifer Aniston, Jennifer Aniston, now you know why she changed it. Thomas Mapother IV, Tom Cruise. So you know why he changed it to Tom Cruise. Um, Katie Hudson, came Katy Perry. Curtis Jackson, 50 Cent. My kids tell me I don't know how to say this right. I think it's like 50 Cent, but I don't know if I'm getting that right. So I'll find out later today. Reginald Dwight is Elton John. Steveland Hardaway, Stevie Wonder. Some people are known just by one name. You have Sting, Bono, Beyonce, Madonna, Oprah, Adele, Pink, Cher, Tiger, Kobe, LeBron. Some people are known by the something. The Rock is who? Dwayne Johnson. Um, Some of you who are older know the Duke is John Wayne. Remember the football player, the Fridge, is who? William Perry. The King is who? It's not Elvis, it's Jesus. What is wrong with you people? We're in church. The king is Jesus. Jacob is wrestling with God. And God says, you will no longer be called Jacob. I didn't create you to be that way. I didn't create you to be that way. From now on, you'll be called prince with God. Because that's what Israel means. Some of you have created an identity for yourself based on your past. That God does not see you for who you were. God does not even see you for who you are. God sees you for who you can become. And he sees this. We see this all throughout Scripture. Time and time again, God does this, which means that he sees you in the same way. God sees you in the same way. When Jesus encountered Simon for the first time, he says, you'll no longer be called Simon You're going to be called Peter. And in an instant, he changes his identity. You'll be known as the rock. And I can build my church on people like you. 
Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted the church, becomes Paul the Apostle, who wrote half of the New Testament. That if you will give God control of your life, he will write a new script for you. And he will give you a new identity and a new name. That you are called forgiven. You are called child of God. Wrestling with God will wear you out. Number two is that God will give you a new identity. Here's number three. Is that your limp can become your greatest strength. Your limp can become your greatest strength. After wrestling with God, Jacob walks with a limp, and he would walk with a limp for the rest of his life. And it is the crucible moments of his life. Here's the thing about scars is they tell a story. I have a scar on my lip from a dog that attacked me. I have a whole story about that. For those of you who limp, you have the story about the high school championship football game and how you had the scoring touchdown, and you've told that story over and over and over again. I imagine for Jacob, his kids said, tell us the story again, Dad. Tell us the story of when, when you were wrestling with God and what God did in you. Some of you are like that. You come in here, and you don't want anyone to know that you've been wrestling with God. You don't have to do that here because this is a place where it is okay to limp. And if God is going to use you greatly, you will walk with a limp the rest of your life. Because Jesus reveals himself not in your strength. Jesus reveals himself in your weaknesses. See, when we begin to talk about our strengths, it brings competition. But when we become vulnerable about our weaknesses... It brings community. And when I work with young leaders, I want to know what is the crucible moment of your life? What fire have you gone through? What has God taught you through the midst of that? Because your limp, your weakness can become your greatest strength. The Apostle Paul had what he called his thorn in the flesh, and he begged God to take it away. And Jesus responds to him, and he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. See, Jesus wants to speak into the, to some of you in the same way. That his grace is sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient for you. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake. I delight in weaknesses and in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, this is what God does in us. Is the point of your greatest inadequacy is God's greatest opportunity to show his power in your life. If you will trust God with the outcomes. If you'll finally just trust God with all of that. Well, fast forward 2,000 years. And God is going to do something even bigger. God is going to send his only son, Jesus, to this earth to be the savior of the world. And Matthew, as a follower of Jesus, one of the 12 disciples, he would write a book with his name on it. And this book would be read by billions of people. 
And Matthew tells the story of Jesus. And here is how Matthew will start his book. He says it like this. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of, and I'm thinking he's going to say Israel because Israel is Jacob's good side. Israel is the cleaned up Jacob. Wouldn't we want to introduce the Messiah with Jacob's good side? But he doesn't say that. He uses the name Jacob. That Jacob is introduced as the savior of the guy with a past. And Jesus came to be the savior for all people with a past. Jesus says, I'm the savior of the part of you that you don't want anyone else to see. I'm not just your savior in your successes. I'm your savior in your struggles. I'm not just your savior in all of your victories. I'm your savior in your defeats. That Jesus wants to be your savior, your Lord. He says, trust me. Would you just trust me? Here's what I want to do is I, I want to I pray with you. But here's my challenge. For some of you, you have been wrestling with God for a long time. And you come in here, you're exhausted. And you're tired. And God says, if you would just surrender. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Because the yoke that you're carrying, it is heavy. And it leaves you bruised and bleeding and worn out. But if you'd let me take over, if you'd let me intervene, then I can show you a new kind of life. And so as I pray, maybe this this is an opportunity for you to say, okay, I'm surrendering again to you. It's all yours. I'm trusting you. I'm tired of manipulating the outcomes. Trying to, trying to, tired of trying to manipulate you, God. So God, we come to you and we thank you for being a God who will wrestle with us to the point where you finally get our attention. And it's not to pay us back, it's to bring us back. And God, for all of us wrestlers in this room right now and who are watching, For all those who are tired and weary, God, we want to take a step towards Jesus again. And maybe there are some people in here who would receive Jesus for the first time in their life. To let Jesus be the forgiver of their sins. So we pray this in his name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.